0: Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Carrington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter eight. It's so good again to see everyone as we continue on and we ask and answer the question, who is this man? Who is this man? Now, many of you, as I look upon, are, are probably old enough to remember this. Some of you may be a little bit younger, but how, you, how many of you remember a famous radio and television show, a western called The Lone Ranger? Anyone here? Anyone? Was that a favorite? Some of you probably listened more to the radio, maybe to the TV. Uh, uh, in my time, it still, it was reruns, but I loved The Lone Ranger. The Lone Ranger was the only surviving member of a group of Texas Rangers who were betrayed and bushwhacked by a friend while pursuing outlaws. After being found and brought back to health by Tonto, a Native American Indian, they both committed their lives to helping the helpless and giving hope to the hopeless. At the beginning of each episode, the magnificent white stallion, Silver, remember Silver? Would rear up with the lone ranger on his back and they would dash off, Ranger excur- the lone ranger excurgingly shouting, Hi, old Silver. You remember that? And Tonto would occasionally be heard to urge on his mount by calling out anyone, remember? Get him up, Scout. At the end of each episode... With the mission completed of helping the helpless, solving whatever the problem was, one of the characters would always ask the sheriff or another authority, who was that masked man? You remember that? Who was that masked man? In today's message, we find Herod asking a similar question as the ministry of Jesus and the twelve grab his attention. Who is this man? Now last week Luke records Jesus equipping and sending out the 12 uh, disciples as his ambassadors. They were to preach the kingdom of God with, while demonstrating the power and authority of Jesus over disease, disabilities, and demons. Alliteration, always the key to learning. In doing so, the compassion of Jesus is now re- not only reflected in their mission, but also extended. And he warns them that they will be received by some and rejected by many. In any case, they were to trust that God would provide all that they would need as he would supply their needs on the journey to be successful. And we learned in that passage that it informed us and encourages us today to continue that important life-changing work. To be always steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord in today's passage, as we are in Luke chapter nine seven through nine, we're going to look at three small verses. Jesus we finds ministry is growing larger in scope and size as it's extended with the twelve. His name is becoming known. Tales of his ministry is spreading. His message is receiving a receptive and exciting uh, excited audience. People are intrigued they're curious and they're excited and they begin to speculate. Who might Jesus be? Luke is going to interrupt his ongoing narrative about Jesus' ministry and mission record that this speculation has now reached even to the house of Herod, while also also quickly referring to the final days of John the Baptist. So with that, we're here. It's going to be on your monitor, but again, in your Bibles, Luke 9, 7-9, where Luke writes now, Herod the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening. And he was perplexed because it was said by some that John, speaking of John the Baptist, had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod in verse 9 said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Father, Give us your wisdom and let us know the difference. between again, my, my opinion, my words and the words of your scripture. There's power in your words. But Father, may we be encouraged and challenged. May we respond to your work. May we see that even this little transition, this little interruption into Jesus' ministry, a, a look real quickly into the mind and the heart of Herod would encourage us. For it too is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. So we thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for those that are here to hear. One day we will stand before the Almighty God and give an account of this time. And Lord, let us not be found wanting, but responding to your wondrous works. In your name we pray, amen. Now, nearing the end. Now, this is what you may need to see. Luke doesn't write this out. But if you take the Gospels and put them together, you see that Jesus now is nearing the end of his Galilean ministry. As you recall, Jesus has been spending the majority of his mission. He's on earth for three years. So here he is in 18 months in. He is now finishing his ministry in Galilee. He's been far from Jerusalem. He's been working in in what you and I would call northern Palestine, northern Israel. And he's about halfway through that three-year ministry, his mission, when he sends his disciples out to minister to the towns and the villages of Galilee, extending his mission. Their successful missionary endeavors and the exploits of Jesus reaches the, the attention of Herod Antipas. Herod is the son of Herod the Great. Now you might recall Herod the Great. He was the one who had killed all the children in Bethlehem that were two years and younger when the wise men came to him saying that there was a king born in Bethlehem. He ruled, now speaking of Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. He ruled Galilee and Pereira, which is in northern Israel, from 4 B.C. to about 39 A.D. He had married his brother's wife. The problem was his Brother was still alive. He was confronted by John the Baptist for this sin and was eventually the killer of John the Baptist. John MacArthur notes of Herod, says that Herod the Tetrarch had a long career. He ruled for 42 years in Galilee and Pereira. And he had ruled the entire life of Jesus from about two years old until after Jesus was gone. He was hated by the Jews because he wasn't a Jew. He, he was an Edomite. He was, a, he was a Roman. He was further hated by the Jews because he had put up idols which they despised. He was further hated by the Jews because he had built his, his capital city and called it Tiberius, a Roman name. And not only that, he built it on top of a Jewish cemetery. And they didn't like that. That desecrated their their cemetery. That made the city unclean. It was because it was Roman, because it was unclean, because it was idolatrous, and because it was desecrated a cemetery. The Jews were very reluctant to even travel and go into that town. In fact, one of the most interesting and fascinating things John MacArthur writes about the life of Jesus is that during his entire ministry in that region, he is not once noted as walking in and visiting that city. You could walk to Tiberius from Capernaum, his center of where he ministered, but yet he never stepped foot. Speaking of Herod, he goes on, he loved wickedness. He, like his father, was murderous and wicked. Now, Luke, as a historian, rightly uses the title tetrarch. Sometimes we say King Herod, but he really wasn't a king. He was a ruler who was given his authority by Caesar. And so though many times you may see King Herod, he really truly wasn't a king as you and I think of the term king. He was a ruler. He was like a, almost like a governor, just a, almost like a, 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 a ceremonial um, ruler, kind of like maybe a vice president. Maybe, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll go on there. Luke notes that Herod was perplexed, meaning that he was confused, bewildered. He was in doubt and utterly at a loss to explain the identity of Jesus as he hears these stories of miracles and walking on water and raising the dead and, and casting out demons. It seems that his confusion is fed by others who are also confused and conflicted on who Jesus is. Those who are coming and giving him the information will say, We're saying when well, he's John, well, he's, he's this, he's that. And, and Herod, well, who is he? And he's just getting conflicting. Uh, Information from all sorts of people. It should be no surprise that the ministry of Jesus has now reached the high halls of Herod's kingdom. In Luke chapter 4, verse 14, after his baptism, Luke writes that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, which would include Tiberias. So Herod would have heard of this that whole time. Jesus is ministering and operating in Herod's backyard. He's he's in his area of rule for the last eighteen months. And though Jesus tried to keep a uh, low-key type of ministry by telling people not to spread the news of what he had done, and by also keeping to the small towns and villages, rather going to a, a larger town, maybe a seat of power, but Jesus' ministry is growing. Most likely the news of Jesus now is ramped up and came to Herod's attention due, attention due to the successful ministry of the 12. Remember, they were casting out demons. They were healing. Trying to grasp who Jesus was, he asked those who attended to him, who is this about whom I hear such things? Who is he that I hear about? like the marketing tag of the old gossip gossip magazine, inquiring minds want to what? They want to know. Now I know who read it. (laughs) Is that in circulation still? I I don't know if it is the inquirer. Is it? I, I don't know. Most likely the news of Jesus was ramped up because of that and they want to know. Normal speculation is rising. It's natural. With everyone sharing their opinion of who Jesus is. It appears that many others had the same questions, but their answers were not satisfying to Herod or to others. And in the end, they weren't correct. Now, you might recall and remember that we've talked about this before, especially in regard to that Messianic fever that, was, that had captured uh, Israel. They were always looking for a, a, a Messiah and we see this as we go through Luke, is, is they were always uh, uh, following someone. And someone would come up, well, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah, and they would draw and flock to these men only to see them fail. And so they were always willing to, to follow someone. People recognized that there was something though different, amazing, and supernatural about Jesus and his ministry. And his message. They had seen many teachers and self professed prophets and messiahs come and go, but Jesus was different. They had been taught through scripture to look for the messiah. So we don't want to fault him for that desire to see the messiah and to the flock. They had been taught all their lives for hundreds of years, thousands of years, to look for the messiah. In scripture, they were promised to look for a great mess- uh, messenger who would prepare the way. We've seen this before about Malachi. Behold, I, I send my messenger and he will prepare his way before me. God promises them. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. His messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord. They were to look for it. They were to expect it. They were to anticipate that the messenger would come who would then pronounce who the Messiah is. He says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before that great and awesome day. Hence why some would say that he's a great prophet or or he's that messenger, he's Elijah. Some would say he's a great prophet like Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, the Lord your God promises that he will raise up for you a prophet like Moses, another one who can lead that great exodus. To him you shall listen. And I will raise a prophet up like you from among one of yourselves, one of your brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command. So that's why we see that some believe, well, is is he Elijah or is he one of the other prophets? Some even said, hey, he's John the Baptist. Even some confused John the Baptist. and they, They would come to him and ask you, are you the Christ? Though John never identified himself as a Messiah, he was so influential and in his ministry was so powerful that it caused many people to think of, uh, of him as the one who was the Messiah. The people in Herod did not believe, though, that John the Baptist had resurrected, literally, when he says, but John the Baptist, Herod was now doing elimination. Wait a second, I know that I, I, I beheaded John the Baptist. It can't be him. But others were saying, but, but it must be. But it must be. He, he acts like John the Baptist. He, he teaches. He has the power of John the Baptist. Now, it's not that they believe that John the Baptist actually resurrected from the dead. I mean, he, John the Baptist had only been, been dead probably just a few months here. So it's not like all of a sudden, I mean, these two people were cousins. They lived during the same time. They were six months apart in age. But what they meant is that the Spirit of John the Baptist had moved to Jesus. You might recall from the Old Testament that Elijah, the great prophet, remember we studied about him with King Ahab? He was the one that brought down fire from heaven and then he went, went to heaven in a chariot, fi- a fire of, char- a chariot of fire. And, but before he went, then God had given him another man named Elisha. And he said, give me the power of Elijah. And so he did. And so that mantle was passed and Elisha wound up being more powerful Then Elijah, there's another symbol that we see, John the Baptist in Christ. So they thought that just the mantle had passed. He had his spirit, his power and authority had been passed now to Jesus. But what is interesting I find in this short passage is that Luke, unlike Matthew and Mark, does not go into detail about John the Baptist's death, which is interesting because it seems like Luke actually gave us more information about John the Baptist's uh, birth than any of the other ones did. The last we heard about John the Baptist, who was called the greatest who had ever lived before Christ, Was that he was in prison and had sent his disciples to ask Jesus if he was truly the Messiah. We actually see him in doubt. He himself is confused and perplexed about who Jesus was. And as you might recall from our studies in Matthew and Mark years ago, Herod both feared and was fascinated with John the Baptist. He's an F and F, you know, fascinated and feared John the Baptist. As so we mentioned earlier, Luke had married his sister, or not Luke, that'd be a bad, but Herod married, I'm rewriting scripture as we talk, you guys better pull me down here. But Herod married his sister-in-law while her husband, Philip, was still alive, Herod's brother. And this led John to condemn them for their sin. And though not technically a Jew, King Herod, we will use that term Herod, King Herod, he's really a ruler, as I said before, he was still expected to honor the law of Moses as the representative of the Jewish people and to live according to the law. In Leviticus, Yahweh had declared, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife, speaking of intimate relationships. It is your brother's nakedness. And if you have a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity, mainly speaking of when they are alive. John the Baptist, just as the prophets of old, boldly proclaimed the truth and called Herod out on the carpet, so to speak. You are wrong. He did not allow Herod's position to derail him from preaching the truth. And this boldness and uniqueness of John's ministry brought several responses. The first one, Herod was puzzled himself and, but was also pleased with John. He wanted to hear him. He was, Herod respected him but also feared him. But Herodias, which was his wife or his brother's wife, she worked to silence John. She didn't want to hear his words. But Herod sought to protect him from his own wife. It's an interesting story that's going on. Luke, though, is not giving us this, so I'm just giving you a little bit of background so we can understand what's going on here. Mark describes Herod as undergoing a moral struggle with his actions. Herod knew John was right. Like you and I, we read the scriptures and we know that they're right, but yet we still struggle to obey him or neglect him, dismiss him. But at the same time, his heart was so filled with lust and desire that he could not listen and obey. While his wife Herodias' heart was filled with murder, she saw red when she saw John the Baptist. She wanted him dead. In the end, Herod's lust and pride led him to be outwitted by his wife. And he was forced to kill John by beheading him, taking off his head Now his wife used her niece, and Herod's weakness, his lust, and pride against him. Herod's sin and his weaknesses led him to be seduced by his daughter-in-law and his niece. His lust led him to make a rash vow to her, offering her half the kingdom, not literally, but an expression of generosity. His pride led him to give in to her demands to kill John the Baptist. It's from this story that we get the background of the phrase, head on a platter. You've heard that phrase. Give me his head on a platter. Asking for the head of one's enemy to be presented on a platter has become a phrase denoting a desire for revenge on an enemy. We find its source here in scripture. Immediately, Herod regretted his decision, but it was politically outmaneuvered. John Calvin writes, it's here on the monitor of John the Baptist. We behold in John an illustrious example of that moral courage which all pious teachers ought to possess. And I'm going to say not just teachers, but all men and women. Not to hesitate to incur the wrath of the great and powerful. As often as it may be found necessary. This week in Men of Conviction in a Chaotic World, we recognize that it is imperative. It is necessary for us to be men and women of conviction. For he with whom there is acceptance of persons does not honestly serve God. You cannot please man and please God at the same time. Now, when Luke writes that Herod sought to see Jesus, he did not mean that Herod was moved by faith and wanted to worship Jesus. But that once again, he was curious. And most likely he wanted to see a miracle from him. We see that later, I believe maybe more in John's letter, when it speaks of Herod wanting to see Jesus right before the crucifixion. He wanted really... To be entertained by Jesus. Now think of that. That's right, Herod rarely wanted to see him. He wanted to be entertained by Jesus. Now, before we condemn him and criticize Herod, I think that describes many people today. You just want to be entertained. You want to have big programs. You want to have uh, smoke machines and, and all these other types of things. And we need to make sure that we're, we're telling jokes and we're telling uh, field experiences and meeting your felt needs. You just want to be entertained. In the same way, people think of Jesus as just uh, one of many solutions to a problem you may have. Oh, my marriage isn't a re- rut. Well, I'll just add Jesus. Oh, I'm struggling financially. Somebody told me that if I find Jesus, I'll have all my needs supplied. So all Jesus is, is just like this little bottle that you get. You pour it into whatever problem and you stir it. And he can be one of the solutions. Not the only solution, just one of many. And so we put different things together. And many people have done that. Unfortunately, many churches have done that. They've taken the wisdom of man and say, Yeah, we want the wisdom of Jesus, but we also need the wisdom of man to make sure that we can understand and worship him truly. I'm going to give you a Greek word for that technical term. Are you ready to write this down? Uh, I'll even spell it. It's called hogwash. (laughs) It's not true. We need Jesus. We need the wisdom of Jesus. We need to seek Jesus. Not for entertainment value. Not for just what we can get out of him. But because of who he is. Let me tell you. There is no greater question in the world than who is Jesus. It is the most important question that you will ever have to answer. Not, will you marry me? What college will I go to? What medical plan should I choose? What retirement plan should I choose? Where should I live? Should we have children? All important questions. But this question, who is Jesus? The answer hangs upon this answer. Hangs the eternal destiny of everyone. Let me say that again because I misspoke. Who is Jesus? That question. Upon the answer of that question hangs the eternal destiny of everyone. No one will be able to escape answering who is Jesus. In Luke's gospel... We have seen several people wonder who Jesus was. I'm going to go through these quick. In Luke, speaking, uh, chapter 5, verse 21, the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can for si- forgive uh, uh, sins but God alone? In seven twenty, and when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In chapter 7, again, verse 49, there were those who were at the table who began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And even in this chapter, Luke 8, verse 25, even the disciples said, who is this then that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey them? Disciples themselves questioned, who is Jesus the Pharisees, John the Baptist, religious leaders, and even the the disciples were trying to figure out who he was. And ironically, ironically, in Scripture, it's the demons who have no qualms or questions about the identity, the ministry of Jesus. When they were confronted with Jesus, they cried out when confronted with his power and his authority. They would say, you are the son of God. Then what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? They were on no qualms. They knew the answer. This question, who is Jesus, is the main reason that Luke is writing this letter. Go back to Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Not only is it a good exercise to go in the Bible, but it helps me to take a drink of water real quick. I know I'm being redundant of why we're looking at Luke, but it's important for us. Redundancy is the key to learning. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. The main reason that Luke is writing, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compare or to compile, to gather, a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, speaking of the church, the brethren, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. In other words, we know that there have been people who have told us about Jesus and the disciples. He goes, just as though, uh, then he goes on to say, it seemed good to me. Also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. What are the things that he wants them to have certainty about? The things he wants them to have confidence confidence about. Who is Jesus? What has he done? Under whose power and authority has he done these things? You may recall that Luke laid the foundation early in his account Beginning with the announcement from the angel Gabriel to Mary that she will have a son. Gabriel says to Mary, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. So from the very beginning, Luke is pointing out, this is who Jesus is. Don't question, you don't need to wonder who he is, here's who he is. This is confirmed then in chapter 1 of Luke, by the testimony of Elizabeth. As she was pregnant with John the Baptist, when she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, she says to Mary, her cousin. And blessed is the fruit of your womb, and why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord... Should come to me. For when, behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby, speaking of John the Baptist, leaped in my womb, came alive. The angel's proclamation to the shepherds at Jesus' miraculous birth Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you this born, or for, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, what? Who? A Savior who is Christ the Lord. With that, Luke adds the testimony of Simeon and Anna in the temple when Jesus was brought to the temple for his circumcision and for the days of purification. Jesus himself declared when he was only 12 years old and left behind on a visit to Jerusalem that he was engaged in where? His father's house. Finally, Yahweh the Father himself declares at Jesus' baptism, You are my son, My beloved son, excuse me, with you I am well pleased. So Luke has not left it up to us to wonder who Jesus is. But Herod and many others at this time still are not convinced or unsure. There should be no doubt in the mind of Luke's readers, including us today, that Jesus is the Son of God. Let me say that again. There should be no doubt in the mind of Luke's readers and us today that Jesus is the, second, or the Son of God. Amen. Okay, he's the second person of the Trinity. He's the Redeemer. He's the Messiah. And we are to draw confidence from Luke's testimony of the preaching, the person, the power, and the purpose of Jesus. You like that, don't you? It's a good one. Randy and I got this thing going and counting how many times I can alliterate uh, during the message. Sometimes I try to alphabetically alliterate. But I don't always alphabetically alliterate all the time. Yet here we are, 18 months into the earthly public ministry of Jesus. And there are still questions on the minds of those concerning who Jesus is. Later in chapter 9 of Luke, we'll read that Jesus himself will finally finally bring this all to to the head when he says to his disciples, or asks to his disciples, Who do you say that I am? You see, upon this very question, our eternity rests. If you get this question wrong, it doesn't matter how many other questions you get on the test right of life, you will fail. This is important. We must consider it. We must think upon it. We cannot continually to dismiss it, neglect it, put it away, just deny it, just put it out of our minds and be busy with our lives. I cannot remember who wrote it, but somebody wrote a book or or made a statement that Satan's best trick in life has been just to keep us busy. Someone said, I was reading a book of fiction just yesterday, and he's talking about the teenagers and people in a restaurant. He says, oh, and I walk in, and the college students were praying to their phones. You see it, right? It looks like that's what they're doing. Not that technology is wrong and bad, but many times it keeps us from considering Jesus. Again, upon this question hangs the balance of our eternal destiny. Or should I say the acceptance of the biblical evidence that Jesus is the Son of God who has redeemed the children of God? Take your Bibles and turn to Revelation 5, please. It's important for you and I to answer this question correctly. You see, Jesus is more than just a miracle worker, a great teacher, or a gentle man. Many have tried to deny his existence. They've tried to diminish his power and authority and to deflect his teachings yet to no avail. In Revelation chapter 2, John writes that the 24 elders in heaven, it is Revelation 5 you're turning to, but in Revelation 22, the 24 elders in heaven fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you have created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Paul tells us, and John tells us, and John in John and Colossians, that that is Jesus. You're in Revelation chapter 5. I want to read, starting with verse 1. We're going to read that whole chapter, so please pay attention and follow along. We read this. This is a vision of John on the island of Patmos. He is brought up into heaven, and he gets a view of heaven. And this is going to be very different from the heaven tourist books that people write. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back it was sealed with seven seals and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal. Verse 3 and no one in heaven on or no one in heaven or on earth or under earth was able to open the scroll And look into it. There's no one worthy. John says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and look unto it. And one of the elders in verse 5 says, weep no more. Behold, the Lamb of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it has been slain. Who is he describing here? Christ. He's describing Jesus with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. In verse seven, this lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. In verse nine, they sing a new song saying, "Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransom people for God. By this time there should be no doubt who John is seen here in heaven. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. He's speaking of you and I, those who can answer the question of who is Jesus. Verse 11. John says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and power and wealth. And wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. What a, You need to underline that, that that phrase or highlight it. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the, side, in the sea. And all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the land. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped echoing Paul's words in Philippians that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. What John is describing there is the man that Herod inquired of. This is the man who puzzled Herod, that mystified the people and irritated the religious leaders the worthy one. Even today, Jesus is puzzling people. They do not know what to make of Jesus. One pastor tweeted out this week here on the monitor, I believe I have that. Look at this. If you have the wrong idea about who Jesus is or or what he will do for you in this life, you will be sorely disappointed with Christianity. Christianity and will likely apostatize, leave the faith, is what that means at some point in your thinking, if your thinking isn't corrected early on. You and I are seeing this every day as one by one people are deconstructing their faith. That's the new word. They don't want to use the word apostatizing or falling away. And he's got a fancy way of saying, I no longer believe in Jesus. I'm deconstructing my faith. You and I look and there's worship leaders who have wrote songs that we have sung here are saying, hey, I'm leaving Jesus. I no longer am a Christian. We have people and pastors who wrote wonderful books that we have passed out saying, I no longer believe in Jesus. Recently it was made known that one of our great preachers that we admire who has written great books that I would recommend to anyone one of his sons is saying I'm no longer a Christian and he spends his time on Twitter making fun of Christians. This week what was it? Uh, uh, We saw a sign that said if Jesus comes again let's kill him again. What was it? UndoJesus.org .com. com. .org. org. Okay .org undo Jesus if Jesus comes again let's kill him again it's interesting when they do this they make moving Instagram videos of it with nature behind them and contemplating looking at the side listening to the brook and the bubble and the all these wonderful things I can't even say it now I had, I had all this language I was going to use but I didn't write it down so now I'm stuck As they're truly contemplating who Jesus is and they find him wanting. They find him unnecessary. They find him just another man. There are people who still profess Christian debating on whether the true Jesus is the one who was gentle and meek or the one who turned over the tables in righteous anger as if they were two Jesuses. There's one. And your eternal destiny hangs on the question is who is Jesus? Get it wrong and it's a miserable fail for eternity. By the way, there's no redo test. You don't get to make it up. You can't plead your way out of the test. Now, fortunately, it's an open book test. And Luke is telling us who Jesus is. Herod will go to his grave, never finding the answer. And he one day did meet Jesus in person and ridiculed him. And sent him out to die. Our desire as elders, and I'm sure for each and every one of you, is that you do not deconstruct your faith. That you truly have answered that question genuinely and have given answer that he is Lord. The Savior. And that you have accepted that. And that your life is led showing that truth. Now you and I as Christians have the answer to that question, who is Jesus? And it's an answer that you and I must share with others. As I said, there are many people who still do not know who Jesus is. It's sad that Thomas Jefferson could not answer that question. Jesus was just a good, gentle teacher. He was a man. The Jews today would say he was a good teacher. Islam would say he's a good teacher and a prophet. Getting maybe a little bit closer, but still denying the power. Peter proclaimed in Acts chapter 4.12 that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. Many have argued against the exclusivity of Jesus. But it's only through Christ that we have salvation. And we must agree with scripture. Salvation is not found in any other worldview, any other philosophy, religion, political, or cultural ideology. It is only in Christ. Oprah may declare that there are many roads to Jesus, but she is sadly mistaken. That thought is straight from the pit of hell. So with it, I want to give you three three things. Since you and I know the truth, we know the answer to the question, who is Jesus? We need to declare it with boldness. Now that's just the main statement. Then I'm going to give you three things underneath it. We must declare that with boldness. Boldness. Paul declared to the church of Rome in Romans 1.16, you see it here on the monitor, that I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jews first and then to the Greeks. Please do not be ashamed of the gospel. Do not be ashamed of Jesus. So with that, you and I must declare with boldness. Why? Because one, we are compelled to, to declare it. That's the first. You and I are compelled to declare it. In 1 Corinthians chapter nine, verses sixteen, Paul writes, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For I do, if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not on my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. By the way, that was number two. Number one was you need to declare it boldly. I'm building upon it. Now I know I've messed up your whole question. I know i know I messed up your whole thing. I'm so sorry. If you'd like, I can start from the beginning. <laughs> Many of you might remember a television and radio show. So one, we must declare it boldly. Number two, we must be compelled. Why? Because we're compelled. We've been given the same power and authority as the apostles. Now, we're not going to cast out demons. We're not going to be healing anyone, though we're still called to do that. God still does that work. He does it in a different way, in a different fashion. But we're compelled. It should be something that says, I need to do this. Many of you are compelled to many things. You have many obsessions. And you can't stop doing it. Well, one of them should be declaring with boldness that Jesus is Lord. If not, then I would cause you to question your minds and your motives and whether or not you truly have answered that question correctly yourself. And number three, we must pray and look for opportunities. Opportunities. To declare boldly that Jesus is Lord. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, Paul requests the Church of Colossae You see it here on the monitor. He says, Would you pray for us? Would you pray for me and Silas, for Luke, for Timothy and Titus, Aphrodite, all these men and women that work with you, would you pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word? I'd, pray, I'd ask you to pray for, for me and, and the elders, that God would give us an opportunity to understand how we are to share the gospel. I would ask you to pray, how can Orangeville Bible Church uh, uh, pr- get the opportunity to share the gospel with those in this neighborhood, in this community? But you should be praying as well. Lord, give me the opportunity to share and tell others who Jesus is, in my family, to my children. To my neighbors, to my co-workers. Why? Because we are compelled to do that. We are to declare it boldly. We have the answer to the question of life that everyone is puzzled and perplexed about. He goes on to say, to declare the mystery of Christ. Pray for an opportunity to declare the mystery of Christ. He says, I'm in that because I'm in prison. Here he is in prison. He's got a captive audience. And he's still saying, give me an opportunity to, to share the gospel with the man who's bringing me my food and locks me in at night. Give me an opportunity to, to share the gospel with the one who's chained with me here. He's hurting. He's tired. He's in pain. He doesn't want to hear about you because of his, the station in his life. But give me an opportunity. By the way, when your friends and family come to you and they're looking for advice, they're looking for counsel, suffering and pain is a a constant companion in their life. This is your opportunity to declare boldly, to compel yourself to do the opportunity to share with them. I have the question to why you're in pain and suffering. And let me point to you one who will make all things new. Why? That I may make it clear. Let there be no perplexity. Let there be no confusion. No doubt. This is who Jesus is. We have that answer. I pray that that you today have no doubt. That you too are seeking him. And we will ever be learning more about him. That's the one thing that you need to understand. There's more to Jesus than just what has been revealed to us. But we will be held accountable for what he has revealed. So let us give thanks to the Father who has sent his Son to bear the wrath of God on our behalf and has reconciled to us to God. Let us give thanks to Jesus who has redeemed us from the penalty and power of sin. And let us give thanks to the Holy Spirit that has opened our minds and hearts to know the true identity and purpose of Jesus May you answer the question of who is Jesus in such a way that not only leads to your eternal life, but to those that you love? With every head bowed and every eye closed, ask the worship team to come on up, and also, Randy, if you would please, as we come to pastor's prayer? Again, you know what I'm about to say. Would you pause? before we leave and rush to our next activity? Would you consider what we've read here this morning, what you've heard? For one day you will stand before God and give account of this time period. He's going to say, have you used your time wisely? That's what he says, redeeming the time for the days of evil. And would you pray and ask the Holy Spirit, what should I do? How should I respond to this truth? Maybe you need to find out who Jesus is. Maybe you don't know him as Lord. Let me share with you this morning before you leave how you can know that you have eternal life. Maybe it's you need prayer, that you would be bold, that it would be a compelling desire in your heart to share and that there's more opportunities. Whatever it may be, that's between you and the spirit and may you glorify him with your response. Randy, would you come and close us? in our pastor's prayer. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.